0: Alright, if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms. We will be in Psalm 53 today. Psalm 53. Let us begin reading. To the choir master, according to Mahalath, a maskil of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable things. I think I'm saying that, abominable iniquity. (laughs) There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil knowledge, who eat up My people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There are they... There they are, in great terror, where there is no terror, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you, you put in them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let God or let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. The title of my sermon this morning is man 's disease man 's disease I think you may understand why, just from the, the reading of the text, but if this psalm sounds familiar, it's probably because it is pretty familiar to, to us. Uh, it's familiar both because of the psalm that we've already preached through, we've already gone through, which Psalm 14 is almost a mirror image of this psalm, and because Paul famously quotes this Old Testament passage either from Psalm 53 or Psalm 14 in Romans 3, a very well known passage among Christians, but. If you have human weaknesses like I do, though, even though we have, we've gone and had both of those passages preached to us, it has been some time since we've had them preached. In fact, Psalm 14 was about three years ago when we had it preached to us. So long ago that I had forgotten I was the one that preached that. Um, so... Uh, it. Obviously, we need it preached to us again. And, and the study that I've had as we've gone through it, or I've gone through it, has been uh, just as beneficial for me this time as what it was uh, for Psalm 14. And I, 14 and I pray that the, the sermon will be that way for each one of you as well. But we, we begin with the title here, and, and we see in the title that this is a psalm written to the choir master. So it was meant to be sung as a congregational song by the people of Israel. This was meant to be sung by each one and and again as a congregation. It was written according to Mahalath and we are told that this is a masculine of David. Now like many of these terms, Mahalath or masculine uh, in Psalms, in these titles, we don't know a lot about the meaning of these titles. Uh, we, We have a lot of uh, assumptions, I guess, or guesses, most of the time, and they're pretty good assumptions based on historical uh, text and things that we can go back and look at. But most of these time, most of the time, these terms that we don't have a lot about, they're musical or uh, liter- musical terms that uh, that were meant to be given to those that were singing or playing, so they would know, how, you know, the tune of the psalm and how to play and what how to sing that psalm. That said, Charles Spurgeon mentions that the word mahalath appears to signify in some of its forms, to mean disease. That word to mean disease, or could signify that it means disease. And that the intention of the word in this title is to describe the disease of mankind, which is deadly, hereditary infection of sin. That is what we see in our text today, and that is why the name of my sermon is Man's Disease. The only cure for which is the miraculous intervention and salvation from God Himself. It is the only cure out there for man's deadly disease and, and what I think this this psalm is really trying to focus on and, and trying to uh, show us. David wrote both this psalm and Psalm 14, which again uh, are nearly mirror, mirror images of each other. Most commentators believe though that the, this psalm, Psalm 53 was written much later in David's life than Psalm 14 was. If that's the case, then what we see, we see that David's view of the world, his view of what's going on both in his kingdom there in Israel and the kingdoms around him are much the same both in his early life and later on in his life. And David's view of the world around him, according to this text, seems very relevant and real to us today, does it not? It would be easy for us to look around and and see the truth that there are none who do good. There are none who are good. There are none that seek good. God. And so this psalm, it really hits home. It it should anyways. This psalm begins in verse 1 very straightforward with a straightforward statement. The fool says in his heart there is no God. So David immediately intends for the point to be clear here, right? The fool says in his heart there is no God. So we have our subject right off the bat. The fool. We need to understand then who or what a fool is to be able to have a good understanding of what this passage means and, and what a fool means in this passage. Now, the word fool is thrown around quite a bit in, in our modern day society. I mean, we use it oftentimes, and, and most of the time when we use it, we use it in the sense of somebody's just, they're not smart, right? They're, they're doing dumb things. They're doing foolish things. And, and that is what a fool does, right? But biblically, Specifically in our passage here, what most of us think when we hear the word fool, it's not exactly what David means in this text. The fool, as David says, is one who says in his heart, there is no God. Now consider this as well. There are not a lot of real true... I'd argue there's not an actual true atheist alive. Someone has faith in something. There's an innate knowledge of God. But there's not a a lot of true practicing, professing atheists even today. There are more now than there's ever been, I think. But when David penned this psalm, there were next to no atheists around, from my understanding. I mean, almost every nation surrounding Israel not only believed in a God, they believed in many gods. So, how does one believe in a God or believe in many gods, but yet David says, a fool says in his heart there is no God. If there weren't maybe many practicing as far as outwardly saying, I don't believe in a God, atheists out there, then how how did they say in their heart there was no God if they, they tried to worship a God? Well, the heart of the lost man cares nothing for the things of God. He wants nothing to do with God. And he wants to ignore God, ultimately. Men have gods, but the truth of it is, is they have gods of their own making. Gods that fit their own imaginations and own desires, right? That's not seeking God. That's not desiring Yahweh. That at its heart is saying that there is no God, because a fake God is no God at all. As David Garland and Tremper Longman describe in their explanation of this psalm, the fool is neither ignorant nor an atheist. The word fool is synonymous with wicked. It reflects the wisdom tradition where the fool aggressively and intentionally flouts independence from God and His commandments. That's their description and their definition of a fool, and I think that is a biblical definition. But if you want a biblical definition of fool, you can look to Isaiah chapter 32. In Isaiah chapter 32, verse 6, we get a biblical definition of a fool. There in that text we read, For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. Now that's quite the indictment, isn't it? A fool is one who has iniquity bound up in his heart. One who practices ungodliness. Who is in utter error, really, concerning the Lord. Does that sound about like all of us naturally? I I think we would agree with that. This utter error concerning the Lord, it leads the fool then to say in his heart, there is no God. Charles Spurgeon states this, sin is always folly. And at its height, sin attacks the very existence of the Most High. So it is also the greatest imaginable folly, right? To sin against the Most High is the greatest imaginable folly. In the heart of all men then is a knowledge that there is God, or a God, but they might not know the true and living God even though they think there is a, a supreme being out there. The fool has convinced himself there is no God then. Why? Why would the fool do that? Well, that is their natural inclination, but also because it allows them to live life according to the depraved desires of their heart, right? Because of this denial of God, the fool acts corruptly and commits abominable iniquities as we see in our passage there in verse 1. Quoting Gerald Wilson, they are led astray by their arrogant assumption that there is no limit to their personal power and control. The corrupt acts of the lost are because of a commitment to a lifestyle based on the false conclusion that God has no effective place in human life. I mean that people act corruptly, the depraved heart acts corruptly because they don't want God in their life. They think they are the supreme being, even though they have a knowledge that there is a supreme being. They want nothing to do with the true God. A lost person, then, the fool, has no true fear of God. And so they have no fear of any consequences for their failure to obey God. Therefore, they do anything and everything that makes them happy and that they deem as best, right? Instead of what God deems as best. They follow their heart, but their heart is wicked and deceitful. They follow their desires, but their desires are set on pleasing themselves instead of pleasing God. So that is the fool that we see in our text this morning. We must see here then that the foolish heart is corrupt. It does not stop with just the declarations of the heart or even of the mouth that there is no God. It leads to abominable deeds as we see in our passage. Deeds that should not even be spoken or acted out by, by a person. Often the Hebrew word for abominable is associated with the works of idolatry and false gods. For instance, in Deuteronomy 27.15, we read, "...cursed is the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord." Child sacrifice, sexual immorality, a lying tongue, cross-dressing, pride, one who sows discord, and a number of other things are seen in Scripture as abominations in the eyes of the Lord." All abomination, though, and all sin really separate people from a holy and perfect God. But the wicked and corrupt heart doesn't care about that. They don't care if they're separate from God. They desire to be separate from God. The wicked heart produces these wicked acts. Jesus states this in Matthew fifteen nineteen when He said, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, slander, that is the heart of a depraved, or that is the, that are, those are the, the thoughts and desires of an evil heart. Now, that description that we get there in Matthew, and the description we get here in our passage of those that do corrupt things, all kinds of iniquity, abominations, that sounds terrible, right? I mean, that, this sounds like a group of people that is really wicked that David is talking to here, and talking about but this is not just a problem for a select group of people, a small select group of people. I'll put it that way. The, the text here says that this is the state of all people, naturally. This is the depravity of man. This problem becomes more and more magnified too. This outward, act, this act, outward corruption becomes more and more magnified as a society glorifies sin instead of being ashamed of it. At the end of this verse, David tells us there is no one who does good. No one is pretty inclusive, right? Uh, This includes the Marilyn Mansons of the world. You kids may not know who that is. You ask your parents, they'll tell you, maybe. But it includes the Marilyn Mansons of the world. It also includes the the nice neighbor who would do anything for you if you called them to help you, but yet they still deny God in their heart and their actions. There might be those who attend church and mimic acts of faith, but their hearts have a blatant disregard for God, His commandments, and His people. And that's exactly what Paul describes in Romans 3, isn't it? Paul uses this text or Psalm 14 to tell us that no one is righteous. The Jew is not righteous because they have the law, nor is the Gentile righteous. There is no one that does good apart from the righteousness of Jesus. All of our works are as dirty rags. Every act of a lost person is sinful because it is done without any thought of giving glory to God. To deny the true and living God by living with an unrepentant heart is to live in complete rebellion to God. It is to make yourself God by making yourself the standard, right? To live in rebellion with an unrepentant heart, again, is... is, Where a a person may not say out loud they do not believe in God, but effectively and in their heart, they do not believe in God. They do not believe that there is a God. As Spurgeon again states, the fallen race of man left to its own energy has not produced a single lover of God or doer of holiness, nor will it ever do so. Amen. Amen, right. In response to these fools who in their heart and in practice live life as if there, there is no God, David tells them in verse 2 that God in, facts, in fact looks down from His throne in heaven on the children of man to see if there are any that understand. Any who seek God. The idea here is, is the understanding that God is he is above creation right he is looking down on on the children of man and any thought or action that we may have against his commands against in rebellion of him he sees against his glory he sees those things they're not hidden from him this is also meant to, to show us that the foolish heart of man is a perpetual state of mankind. This was not just a problem in the, the time of David when he wrote this. This is, not, this is not just an issue he was dealing with alone in his generation. This is an ongoing, generation, or ongoing problem in every generation. And God sees this as He looks down on the children of mankind. I think we can see that pretty clearly as we, we go through Scripture. We can see this issue in every generation in, in, in the in the Bible, and we can see this in our own day. Right? This is not something just confined to Scripture. And it's uh, hard not to be reminded as we we read these several passages or the, this passage here. It's not hard not to be reminded of several passages in Genesis when we read this verse prior to the, the flood, specifically. Back in Genesis 6, we're told this, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of His heart was only evil continually. And in response to that, what did God do? He destroyed the world and all in it apart from the few that He saved in the ark. Later on, the picture of God knowing the thoughts and intention of His creation and the the evil wickedness in their hearts can clearly be seen in, in chapter 11 where the men of the earth attempt to build a city and a tower with, with the top of that to heaven, presumably to, to reach God and, and ultimately their attempts are to defeat any judgment God may bring on them later. God again said that He came down to see the city and tower and in response to that, He said, come and let us go down and and there confuse their language so that they may not or might not understand one another's speech. The book of Genesis yet again later on in chapter 18 gives us another example of God looking down from heaven to see and hear the wicked hearts of man. There, after making a surprise visit to Abraham and Sarah, the Lord told Abraham this, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And of course, what happened? He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for the evil that they had lived in and the pride in which those cities had now, God is omnipresent, so obviously he's, he's not literally having to look down from heaven to see whether there is anyone good or not. He knows all, He sees all, and is everywhere at all the time. But we are given this picture for our understanding of benefit, right? As, as mankind, as, as we see things and think about things, God has given us this picture. But we have a clear distinction here between the true picture of Yahweh and the picture that lost man makes up of, of God. While man, make up, man makes up gods who are very, uh, have very little interest in what they do and in what men do, or they make up gods who have little or no ability to control or affect the affairs of men, the picture that David gives us here is that of Yahweh involved in His creation directly involved and constantly and consistently generation after generation involved in his creation he's not just involved involved a little either he's omniscient so he sees and knows everything that is going on in his uh, in his creation not just the actions of people but their hearts and their motives and behind those actions right and what Do we see all of these accounts that we read there in Genesis have in common as God looked down and He saw the evil intentions, the wicked nature of these hearts, those, the fools that said there is no God in their heart? God was aware of what the thoughts and actions of those wicked men were and then He brought severe judgment on them for that wickedness, right? So, as we look at our text here in Psalm 53, we should see this as a warning really from David. God is watching our every action. He knows the intent of our very hearts. He sees what happens in the public, but He also sees what happens in the darkness of our own homes. And He judges sin without fail. There is no sweeping a sin under the rug. There is no sin so so small that it cannot or will not be judged. It will either be judged through the blood of Christ, or you will pay for eternity for it. And we will see that really as we move through this text. In verse 3, David gives us the answer to whether or not God sees any who understand or understands or, or seeks God. He says, everyone has turned back. They have turned the other way. All have become worthless or corrupt. There is no fear of God. There is no wisdom and understanding. When a man understands that he is destined for eternal damnation, when he stands before God in his filthy, sinful rags, that is the beginning of wisdom, right? The the fear to fear that is true knowledge. But the natural man does not. Further, they do not seek God because they don't want him, as I've explained earlier. In fact, not only, as we see in this text, not only do they, they not seek him, Natural man have all turned aside. They don't seek Him and actively turn away from Him for their own desires instead. Everything the natural man does is bent on his own pride, his own glory, his own desires. Man loves his sin, and the thought of being reigned in by a holy and righteous God is infuriating to the natural man. So they continue to turn from God and turn from His commandments. You know, even as children of God, we can struggle with this at times, right? I mean, our hearts can be pricked by a sermon or a song or by a reading of a passage or even by a fellow Christian lovingly pointing out a wrong we have done, but our initial reaction oftentimes in the flesh is that of the flesh, right? We get frustrated or we turn away from the truth presented to us at first because we love our sin and we want to sin and we want our desires more than we want to respond to a holy God. If we find ourselves doing that, if we find ourselves in that position, repent. Repent quickly because that is the way of the wicked. That is the way of the fool. We have true wisdom as children of God. Whether we like it or not, we should like it if it's God's Word ultimately, right? We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and so we are not to ignore the Holy Spirit and God's Word. David continues and states that together they have become corrupt. Now, together is not saying that they teamed up and became corrupt together. No, they they are together corrupt as a group, right? This is all part of this group of fools. They all became corrupt. All natural men are corrupt. And again, we have this broad, sweeping declaration of mankind as a whole. There is none who do good. And he he adds here, not even one. So God here reconfirms and reiterates that no one, not even one, does good. And and as we sit here and we read this and we see this, this is the verdict of an all-knowing, all-seeing, all-perfect God who cannot exaggerate, and cannot make a mistake. That's his verdict. Whether we like it or not, that is the accurate state of natural man. Looking at verse 4, we see David then look at the state of man and, and really wonder at the depravity of man. He says, "...have those who work evil no knowledge? Who eat up My people as they eat bread and do not call upon God?" Now, while we should certainly see these first few verses as the state of all men naturally and we should therefore not take any personal pride in our salvation as if we did anything to obtain it or to deserve it, we should still see the absolute folly of the natural man, right? And we should speak against such evil and wickedness instead of just accepting it. That's not what we're called to do. It should cause us, as David is here, to, to really be, really say and, and, and think as he does and wonder in a sense of horror as at the state of mankind apart from God, right? It's a terrible place apart from God. It is wickedness, it is corruption. There is no hope. Even more so at, at, at the foolishness of those who are openly and obviously denying God and oppressing his children, right? We cry out with David in that sense have they no knowledge? How can they begin to think that they are openly living in and what they're openly, openly living in loving is okay? How can they continue to think that defying God will be okay for them? We cannot fathom how they can rebel in such a way against God and, and deny His existence in their hearts. Again, quoting Spurgeon, if the sinner could by his atheism destroy the God whom he hates, there were some sense, although much wickedness in his infidelity, but denying the existence of fire does not prevent its burning a man who is in it. So doubting the existence of God will not stop the judge of all the earth from destroying the rebel who breaks his laws. Spurgeon is saying there that just if... Just because somebody denies the existence of God does not mean he's apart from judgment for breaking his laws. You can deny in your heart or practically all you want that there is no God, but there is a God, and you will be judged for breaking his law. What is truly sad about man naturally is that they think by denying God and living what they want to do that they are freeing themselves from some type of bondage. But really what they're doing is they're enslaving themselves to continue to be workers of evil and sin. They are trading freedom in Christ for slavery to sin. That is sad. What is even sadder is the end result of that slavery to sin, right? It doesn't just end here on earth. I mean, you don't just sin and rebel against God and then it's over when you die and you have all happy, happiness and great things when you go into eternity. No, you sin and rebel against God and you spend eternity paying for that sin and rebellion. I know that idea is just floating out there that when we, it doesn't matter what happens, when you die, you're just going to automatically go to a better place. You heard it said everywhere and all the time. Every funeral, every, you say the, the, the wickedest person out there, they die, and the, the comment is, well, they're in a better place. But that is false. Amen. And Scripture is clear that the wicked will suffer eternally, <laughs> their sins will bind them in punishment for eternity. As we continue in verse 4, we see that this hatred of God and this corruptness in life, they are motivators then for the wicked to eventually begin persecuting the righteous. This has been the progression of the fool, hasn't it? The the foolishness begins in the heart and it comes out in abominations and sinful acts resulting in the turning away from God and then ultimately it often results again in the persecution of the saints of God. So this cry of David's here was not solely based on the wicked's de- denial of God, but because their evil had been, directly d- or had been directed at God's people. These wicked, in their pursuit of their selfish gains and desires, they eat up or they devour the people of God. And this is a picture of how the wicked seem to prosper while the, the, the righteous suffer in this life, but more directly, the wicked prosper by persecuting God's people sometimes. They cannot destroy God, so they try to destroy His children. They learn this directly, though, from their father, Satan. In Revelation 12, John gives this broad, sweeping history of creation all the way through the end of the tribulation period. And he tells us how Satan had, had tried over and over to destroy the Messiah, but obviously was unable to do that. And when he realized that, then he turned his wrath on the people of God and he began to devour them. Jesus warned of this hatred and persecution during His ministry. He said that they would hate us because they first hated Him. And the servant is not greater than the Master. Meaning that we cannot expect and should not expect to escape this hatred, this devouring, this persecution from the world. Verse 5 goes on to describe the end of these fools though. There they are in great terror where there is no terror for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you, and you put, to, or you put them to shame. for God has rejected them. excuse me, God has rejected them. Look, there will come a time when these wicked, these fools, they will know that, that there is a, a judge. They will, they will know a true and great terror, a fear. David speaks here of this future judgment, really, the, the day that the fools will stand before God in judgment for their sins. Even though this is future, David speaks of it in in present tense here as if it's already occurring. He's doing so because the judgment of one who dies in wickedness is as sure as if it has already happened. There will be no running away or hiding at that point. He has already scattered the bones here, we see, of those who have encamped against his, His people or come against His people. And David is describing judgment that comes unexpectedly here and comes quickly Despite eating and drinking and living their best lives now, judgment will come, and it will come quickly. Ironically, the fool who refuses to acknowledge God, whether in word or in action or both, they will be overwhelmed with dread and destruction by the very one that they deny. And it's interesting, as we we see this in verse 5, we see this... Uh, this, this description of this judgment is interesting to see what David's focus is here and how the judgment comes in response to the wicked, the fool's mistreatment of God's children. Not that they aren't or won't be or wouldn't be judged for every other sin that they commit, but I think we're meant to see here both the seriousness of mistreating God's children and also the comfort that a child of God should have knowing that God knows what's going on with us. He sees it. And He's not, uh, he, he doesn't just ignore it, right? He's not ignoring any mistreatment, any persecution, any hardships that we have. And not only is He not ignoring it, He doesn't take it lightly. In, in fact, in Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus spoke to the disciples about His return and the setting up of His earthly kingdom, He tells them to begin with that as He the, judges the nations in that point, that the judgment for the righteous will be marked and, and they will be rewarded for their treatment of Christ's children, right? He says, and Jesus told them that when they fed the, His hungry children, they were feeding Him. When they gave His thirsty children something to drink, they were actually giving Him a drink. What they did for His children, they were actually doing for Him. On the reverse side of that though, Christ promised the, to judge the wicked in that day as well for refusing to care for His children and for oppressing and devouring them. In the book of Revelation, we learn that Jesus' return to earth and judgment of the wicked is an answer, in fact, of the prayers of the saints who were persecuted. Look, God's judgment of the wicked is both righteous and true, and also an answer to the prayers of the saints of God. Christ is serious about how His children are treated. We should take that as a warning both as children of God, treating how we treat our brothers and sisters. And also the, the lost world should certainly take that as a, a warning. But God here he warns and he comforts. The plans of the wicked are put to shame and, and devour his children will will, will the devouring of his children will only bring condemnation and judgment from God Himself. They were put to shame as they rejected God in their foolish hearts. And there is really no greater shame than to be rejected, as we see here, by the Creator God. Nothing worse can happen than that, right? To be eternally rejected by God. This psalm wraps up with a a wonderful call in verse 6 to fix, basically, the current state of affairs. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of His people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is a cry, as we see here, by David for the return of the Messiah and the setting up of His kingdom. Now, David knew full well what he was crying out here for. Zion is synonymous with the city of God. It is Jerusalem. It is where Christ will rule from when He returns and sets up His kingdom. And the Old Testament is full of passages that point this out. And it's something that David was well aware of when he made this plea here in this passage. In Psalm 9:11. David also wrote this, Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Now, The Lord was not literally enthroned in Zion at that point, but David was looking forward to the time when He will be. Many prophets, they build on this truth in Scripture speaking of the coming of the Messiah and the reign of Christ on David's throne. So as David observed the helpless state of man and the oppression of the wicked on the righteous, his heart cried out for a remedy. His heart cried out for an answer. And the remedy was that of the return of Christ. That of the coming of the Messiah. That is quite a thought, isn't it? Here you have David, the king of Israel. There's no doubt that he had all the pleasures available to him in this life that he could ever want. He was also a good king. I mean, he ruled his kingdom well for most of his life. Yet he knew, probably more than anyone else, that he was unable to rid the world or even his kingdom of wickedness and sin and oppression, right? He was unable to deliver His people from the fool. He knew that He could not remedy any evil that had been done to them or make them forget their troubles at the end of the day. But He knew also that there was one coming that could and would do that. And His heart cries out for Him. Whatever struggles might have been in his life or the life of his people at that time, they would be set straight when the Messiah sets foot in Zion. This was a call of celebration then, of worship. This truth is worthy of rejoicing over. If such a king as David had this desire, then then should we not as well? So this song, it ends with an encouragement from God's people to sing and pray for the coming of God and the restoration of Israel because when it will come, when it comes, both gladness and joy for the people of God and the judgment of the wicked who have devoured and oppressed God's people will come. This psalm it began really painting a very bleak picture for us, a picture of reality though. This is a truth that must be proclaimed, and, and I'd say more as, as much or more than ever. God is real, and there is no hope apart from Him. Anyone living as the fool, not only will live lives of wickedness and slavery to sin, but they will eventually experience terror like they cannot imagine when they see God. We should be quick to remind. The lost of this utter and complete foolishness in their heart, and how dangerous it is. This is first and foremost. This psalm is first and foremost a call to the fool to see and be wise, to fear God and His coming judgment for rebellion to Him. But as we we look at this psalm for a child of God, a chapter, a psalm like this, it should do a couple of things for us as well. It should remind us of who we are, a part of Christ, who we were before He saved us. We can struggle at times, I think, when we see the wickedness of of the world just like David did. But if we aren't careful, we can get a little caught up in our own self-righteousness as well and forget that if not for God, we'd be no different. Our desires would be just as evil and our destination just the same. David is... No better example than that of us, for us, or there is no better example of that than David himself, right? I mean, David got caught up in, in very sinful things in his life. Just as sinful as you can imagine a, a, a wicked person as we would think of today could get caught up in. We don't want to be fools, though, right? We do not want to act like the fool. Instead, we want to be the opposite of fools. We want to seek God where the wicked turn away. We should desire then to live in harmony with the Word and will of God and seek to conform both our hearts and our actions to Him by trying to live lives according to His Word. Live lives of holiness, purity, and justice. That is the life of wisdom, not the life of a fool. But this also should remind us that God is able and capable of saving David felt this way thousands of years ago, yet God has saved millions upon millions of souls to this day since he penned this psalm. It is easy to get discouraged, I think, when we look around and we see the evil around us. and, And it's easy to think all is lost. There's no hope. To feel that things have gotten so bad that hope seems lost and scared for our children, scared for our grandchildren and what they will see, what they will face. And we kind of get to the point sometimes that we wonder if God is still saving. If God is still working. Or are we ever going to see a revival in our community or in our nation? And I don't know the answer to that. But I can tell you this. God is not done saving. And until He declares that He is, well, let us be encouraged knowing that He can and will save. If God can change our stony hearts and change them to hearts of flesh, then He can change anyone's heart. And let us rejoice then in the salvation to come and spread the Gospel in faith that God will work. Finally, this psalm has really pointed us to one. right; It has pointed us to Christ and His return. David wrote it with this in mind and this in view. Man's need for a Savior and the coming of that Savior for the restoration and and the refreshing of Uh, of Israel and of this world is, is clear in this passage. This should give us comfort and should remind us then how to pray, right? How to think. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Sometimes when I think of Christ's return, the thing that excites me the most is the knowledge that with His return will also be the putting away of such vile and widespread corruption and sin. As this final verse declares, salvation will come from Zion. At times, I want nothing more than to see people engulfed in wickedness to realize how sinful they are and how hopeless they are and to turn from those sins and become a fellow brother and sister in Christ. It is the openness of sin and the celebration of it that really breaks my heart at times as we look around in this world. But there is coming a time where that will be no more when Christ will reign as the perfect King and the perfect Judge, will nations will collectively seek His face. That's a wonderful thought. That is a wonderful time to look forward to. So why not pray, Your kingdom come, You will be done. Stand with me.